Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to another episode of the Hunt the Wild podcast. I'm your host Adam Bolds and today I'm joined with Marcus Gray. Um, Marcus is a, a squirrel hunter, likes to train dogs and uh, a biologist and I uh, believe he has a book as well. So um, Marcus, can you introduce yourself and tell everybody kind of who you are and uh, a little bit of your background? Sure. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's good to be on the show. Um, yeah. So like you said, I'm a, a wildlife biologist by training, but I started squirrel hunting as a kid. Uh, one of these, one of these people that is a lifelong hunter uh, rather than somebody that maybe got into it later in life. But um, yeah, I started hunting squirrels 30 years ago now. And that was really led by my dad and my uncle who grew up subsistence hunting squirrels. Um, they didn't have any option, but to hunt small game, they either, the part the part of the country they lived in deer hadn't recovered yet. Turkey were just uh, being reintroduced. Um, there were a lot of quail. Um, so, so everybody had bird dogs and coon hounds and they hunted squirrels. You know, if they didn't raise it, they hunted it. So it was, there really wasn't this, um, big game focus that there is now just because the animals weren't there. And so um, I went to school to be a wildlife biologist because I felt like natural resources had given a lot to our family, but uh, now it was time to give something back. And so I wanted to manage these populations and the habitat that they need to be sustainable so that people could have that same opportunity um, and that these wildlife populations were relatively stable uh, into the future. And, um, you know, that comes with all, you know, you go into this thinking that everything needs to be saved, but then now we've got populations of deer, turkey, bear, and other species that are overabundant, you know, resident Canada geese, you know, um, how do we deal with urban sprawl, suburban wildlife where people no longer, not, not just, they just don't hunt, they are against it. Um, and it's, it's always been, mind-boggling to me that this opportunity that was a necessity for my dad's generation has now become a frivolous pastime that nobody thinks we need and it's like that wasn't that long ago um you know my dad grew up using an outhouse and my grandpa would go to town he went by pete is a nickname but anyway he went, he'd go into town and my dad's name is chuck and people would ask him say pete you got running water he said oh yeah chuck runs out and gets it so it just <laughs> <laughs> we've had a completely different experience than i think the generations that have come just before us where um, they were making a living off the land and they were part of the natural system. Whereas today we're removed and we think that it's a luxury that um, we can do, do without hunting. So um, it's, it's been tricky in that way. Um, but I went to undergrad in Maine. So I grew up in Virginia, but I went to Maine for um, undergrad cause I didn't want to go anywhere hotter. Um, and then I ended up going to South Dakota for grad school. And, um, yeah, it seems you go to these places where the economy is based on hunting and fishing, you know, snowmobiling, hunting, fishing, trapping, um, and then come back to the East Coast and, and we're embroiled in all these battles all the time about whether or not we should have a bear hunt in New Jersey or whether we should have dove hunts in Michigan. Um, and so I worked um, for the federal service as a wildlife disease biologist for a couple of years, trapping feral hogs and you know, rocket netting geese and catching ducks from airboats and stuff like that. It was really a wild job, but it's like, if you're not 
an obsessive hand washer, that job will make you one because it's, it's just <laughs> dealing with the disease and die offs. And, you know, it was, it was a very glamorous job, but it was also disgusting. So I was like, have nightmares about getting brucella or something from these pigs or uh, tapeworms or raccoon roundworm, you know, doing a necropsy or something. Um, but anyway, so I went to work. Um, we were at a, a necropsy training in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, I know this is TMI, but they, the agency basically was like, well, there's 39 of you disease biologists and we have funding for 19. If you're able to find a job, please do so. <laughs> and so we're like, okay. Well, at the time, I didn't have a wife or kids or a house. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'll find another job. And so I actually went to work in D.C. on Capitol oh. Hill for a, a hook and bullet organization, uh, Safari Club International Foundation, working on their large mammal conservation program. So I worked with elephants, you know, indirectly with, with projects in Africa, uh, uh, Marco Polo, Argali in Asia, um, you know, European, uh, Iberian, Ibex, all these great things. And then here in North America, we had elk and deer, bear, uh, and, and just a whole slew of different pro bison projects and all these different cool things um, that we we're basically providing the scientific oversight and the funding and making sure people are doing their reports and then doing board reports and helping the legislative side of SEI with their legal arguments. You know, they're like, oh, can I uh, say X? about polar bears and we're like eh, no not exactly this is actually what the literature says and then they would take that and incorporate it into their case and then um you know work on importation permits for black rhino and things like that so i mean i got there's a i got a picture of a rhino up here but like it's um it was a very it was a very rewarding job you know working on these sustainable use issues you know we're going to all these committees of these different organizations and stuff but it was like a terrible commute you know the job being mm. in dc was rough Go, you know, I basically had two jobs. One was commuting because it took me three and a half hours to get there every day. Um, oh and then the other was working in the office eight or 10 hours a day. So, yeah, so it was, it was just wearing, you know, it was just falling, everything was falling apart. Um, so, you know, my wife got a job uh, in the Northeast. And so we went back up there and uh, I just started working at all these nonprofits, you know, helping clean up these non-governmental organizations. You know, they needed help on their reporting or, applying for grants or, you know, doing projects in the field, like cover crops for farm, you know, farm agricultural best management practices, you know, for water quality and soil health and wildlife habitat. Um, and since 2016, and this is a long winded answer, but since 2016, um, I've worked primarily on pollinators in, in particular butterflies. So I've come full circle, I've, you know, grad school, I studied, studied prairie dogs and bison and burrowing owls and monitored birds and stuff. And then then I worked with large mammals and now I'm down, I'm relegated to butterflies. I'm the butterfly guy these days where I used to be the squirrel guy. And so that's what we're talking about tonight is, um, you know, hunting squirrels. And, you know, I, I just got into that because that was my exposure to the outdoors other than, you know, fishing farm ponds. And um, it, it just was accessible to me. I had family who had land that, you know, they didn't care if I kicked around with a rifle, um, you know, as long as I shut the gate. And not everybody has that same opportunity or, or experience. So like, I, I definitely realize that. And that's why we work so hard on these, these hunter access um, issues when I was in DC and even now, you know, Sunday hunting or, you know, I grew up in Virginia hunting the largest state park, which is now closed to general hunting. It just eroded over time. Hmm. Nobody went to the meeting and I was living out of state. Nobody, no hunter showed up to the meetings. Right. And so 
the non-hunter, non-consumptive users had to say. Horseback riders, mountain bikers. And I don't have anything against those folks, you know. Um, but when you build a 500 house subdivision against a natural area and then get mad when somebody hunts it, you need to reevaluate your um, your position on some of these things. And we deal with that at the National Forest, too, here in Virginia. We've got millions of acres that um, is, you know, people are constantly working to not make it accessible. And we have dog hunting debates and, and all these other things. So, um, yeah, it's just it's crazy. It's like we got into these squirrel dogs just so our kids could experience you know, some of that. Uh, you know, our family had school dogs in previous generations, um, but I got us back into them in 2005. And it's like hunting, the introduction most people get to hunting, sitting there, having to be quiet, in the cold, hungry, doesn't work for kids today. <laughs> it just doesn't. Um, you, you'll, get one, you'll get some, but the general, if you just grab a kid off the street, they're not going to sit there for two hours, let alone all day, yeah. you know, or for a couple times a day. Um, it's just tough. And so like with these dogs, you can watch the dog. There's always something going on. You know, you, you can train the dog. So if you like dogs, here you go. There's a dog gives you access to food. Um, and you don't have to sit there and be quiet. They can walk along, throw sticks. You know, I just, I just hunted with, um, Pete Brooks from Brooks outdoors. He's a outdoor writer from the DC area, actually Northern Virginia. And, um, you know, his son came along, you know, about 12 or 13. And he was asking questions and, you know, talking and, and interacting with the dogs and stuff. Whereas if we're sitting there still hunting or stand hunting, there um, wouldn't have been that opportunity to answer his questions. He would have just been sitting there, you know, he would have been absorbing things, but it wouldn't have been uh, as interactive, I don't think. What made you want to pick up uh, pick up on, on training dogs again? So you had them as you were a kid, right? But then you went years without um, messing with them or anything. What, what brought that back in? Was it your kids yes. or? Well, no, I mean, I, I got into, I got back into squirrel dogs. I, I've always liked little terrier type dogs, you know, like Jack Russell's and stuff like that. But it was like, how can I combine squirrel hunting that I was doing? You know, I, I hunted mostly growing up, uh, almost entirely growing up without squirrel dogs. Um, my first dog was actually, um, not used for squirrel hunting. He just uh, hunted the food dish, but he was half, um, <laughs> half American Foxhound and half Beagle. He was a deer dog. Hmm. Um, and that was, that's a funny story. Maybe we could talk about another time, but, uh, we went, to, long story short is that, uh, we went to pick the dog up and he's like a year and a half old and, uh, you can, you can put two and two together, but she, she called him AH when she called him and he came running and jumped into this pond that, you know, Jesus wouldn't have been uh, impressed if he walked across. Is in this horse paddock. It was just green, and came out and shook all over us and whatever. We put him in the car and left. But yeah, A H. If you think about somebody who's a knucklehead, what well, you might call him. And she she started calling him A H because her neighbors were tired of her cussing off the back porch. So um, <laughs> that dog was a knucklehead for sure. Barked all the time. But um, but I got into these Jack Russells and it was like I wanted to hunt them, but you know we didn't have really a lot of raccoons or, or groundhogs or foxes right around where we were at at the time. Now they're everywhere, but at the time there weren't a lot around just the habitat has changed. And so it's like all the agencies and they spent a lot of time promoting what we used to have, you know, upland bird, you know, grouse, quail, you know, they stock pheasants and, and we go, okay, 
all right, well, what's available that's not being utilized? And it's squirrels. Um, and so that's there's just been this huge resurgence in squirrel dogs because of that. There's timber everywhere. There are squirrels almost everywhere. It's easy to get access. You know, so it's it, it's up until the last couple of years, it's been pretty well ignored. You know, it's, oh, it's squirrels. Nobody wants, you know, it's not romantic enough, I guess. So we're trying to bring a little class yeah. to it, you know, um, have a little nicer gun, a little nicer dog box and truck, you know, but not that I can afford a big truck. But, you know, how can <laughs> how can we make it less, less, uh, I don't know. I mean, I cater to everybody, but like, how do we make it less lowbrow in some people's eyes? And it's the cooking, you know, the squirrel meat you can use in any recipe um, that you would use uh, rabbit or chicken or pheasant in, you know, up and birds in. And so that, that gets a lot of people, they're surprised, I think, um, when they try these quote unquote high end dishes made out of, made out of squirrel. The next question I kind of wanted to dive into was the, the shotgun and the 22 debate. Um, is there a difference? Hmm. I usually like to to hunt with a 22 when I'm being super stealthy and stuff, but does it matter when you're hunting uh, with dogs? Sure. Oh, there's no debate. The 22 is better. No, um, no, it's, um, <laughs> it, there is a huge debate and, and it's sort of like this nostalgia. I mean, I grew up hunting with a 22 iron sights. You know, we, we didn't use the cheater tube as it were, you know, no scopes. Um, I used to be able to see a little better, but, um, <laughs> it depends on the situation, right? As more places get developed, it's a little tougher to shoot a rifle up in the air and be like, and pretend that's okay. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it make sure you got a good backstop and all, you know, but traditionally we've shot at squirrels out in the twigs, you know, and it's like, that's probably not, especially if they're moving, that's probably not the best idea anymore. Um, which is hard for me to say because I'm a, I'm a rifleman. So, um, most situations, especially if you're new to an area and you don't know the surroundings, a shotgun is the way to go. It's good to have it's good to have a mix of both shotguns and rifles in the in the same party to make you more versatile. So I don't Do know you, what that's uh, about. about to switch to my ever, hotspot on my phone. You ever find yourself in situations where you like kind of want to use a twenty two, but you have to use a shotgun because of you know, houses or whatever in the oh. vicinity? Yeah, and it's making sure you scout the area before you go and, and know where the buildings are and the roads are. And, you know, you never shoot low at anything um, regardless. But, um, yeah, it always seems like if you're hunting by yourself and you take a rifle, they run like crazy. You know, or if you, you're hunting by yourself and you take a shotgun, they're sitting there looking at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's – it's anymore it seems like, like uh, it's good to hunt not by yourself. <laughs> But I don't have that luxury all the time. And that's sort of the beauty of the dog, too, is the dog will um, go around the backside of the tree and spin the squirrel around, or they'll try to get it to stop uh, by barking at it and getting in front of it and that sort of thing. So it makes makes you a little more effective. I uh, I feel like I'm probably um, – I, I feel like maybe a lot of people that listen to this show don't squirrel hunt, but I'm trying to make that a little more romanticized, as you said it. Anybody that's wanting to get involved in squirrel hunting, I know not not everyone grows up maybe doing that for their first hunt. I know a lot of people around here do, but I've talked to some people and they're like, well, mm -hmm. I've, I hunted deer the first time I went out or I hunted pheasants. So anybody that maybe listens to this show or has been thinking about getting out squirrel hunting, um, how would you um, recommend them going if they don't know anybody? I mean, where's a good place to start? They don't have a dog or anything. 
Right, right. Yeah, it's part part of the reason has been marketing. You know, the manufacturers and the outdoor companies and the state agencies have been pushing big game really hard probably you know, for the last few decades. And that's really because that's been the bread and butter, you know, especially deer, now turkey, um, you know, for participation. It's, it's always been, you know, deer hunting. Once they, once they were restored, it became deer hunting. You know, when they weren't available, nobody was hunting them. Or, you know, they had poachers. But, you know, you didn't have the following for whitetails, for example, like you have now. Mallards were the thing. You know, um, mallard ducks are the most studied bird on the history of the planet because there were so many waterfowlers back then. Um, in the 30s and 40s, when there were no deer, all the big university studies before Big Game were restored um, were on small game, rabbits, squirrels. I've got a book over there from 1940s called Michigan Fox Squirrel Management. They were all about, you know, how can we get more squirrels per acre, more harvest attempts for people, more time, you know, more game for the pot and all that. That's what they're about all the time. And then when they got deer and turkey back, everything just switched. So, you know, getting into it, it's fairly inexpensive. You know, you can be as expensive as you want to get the toys, you know, high-end rifle, high-end scope, um, different loads for ammunition and things. But really a basic 22 or a 20-gauge shotgun, just go buy the box of shells off the shelf, you know, if you can find them. Um, get the box of shells off the shelf and uh, go to a likely spotted timber on state land, you know, um, and there's generally opportunities to squirrel hunt, especially now in January and February, there aren't a lot of other hunting seasons open. Um, you know, you've got rabbit in, in certain areas, but, but there's just not a lot of rabbit hunters anymore either, uh, depending on where you're at in the country. But, um, you know, there's, it's pretty accessible, you know, like here in Virginia, in North Carolina, a lot of the Northeast, you know, there's game lands or conservation area, whatever you want to call it, wildlife management area, um, within 30 miles, you know, I mean, you wouldn't, you never would have thought, you know, in this, in the eighties or before 1980s or before that anybody would drive 30 miles each way to hunt squirrels. Everybody went out their back door, but that's the world that we live in today. Um, like I said, the, the place that I used to hunt was 7,000 acres and now it's not open to hunting at all. You know, magically they couldn't find any compatible area for small game hunting. So um, now if you live in the Richmond area, you've got to drive 30 to 45 minutes um, to one of the other wildlife management areas. So, um, you know, the state agencies have pretty good information in their and guidebooks about where to go, uh, what places are better than others. You know, like if you're in the upper Midwest and like, all you have to do is look at the topo map or, or the um, the cover maps and find the timber. You know, you don't want to be in a slough or a prairie or, you know, um, you can find the patches of woods to get into. Um, but here on the East Coast, um, there it's, it's making sure that you've got a safe place to go um, where you're not going to be interrupted by somebody doing something else, walking a dog, you know. Um, I've had people on bikes try to catch a dog before because it bark and treat. And they were like, there's something wrong with the dog. I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with the dog. Go away. <laughs> this is a hunting area. And they're like, why are you hunting in here? I'm like, it's a wildlife management area and the season's open. That's why I'm wearing orange and I'm carrying a gun, you know? <gasps> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they just don't, they, people just don't have the, don't have the experience or the, 
that that's not their connection to the natural world. It's not it's not hunting. So they think open space is a national park. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they don't make the distinction a lot of times between state, federal, county parks systems. You know, they just land ownership is is ambiguous to a lot of people. Um, so yeah, you have to watch that. You know, um, I was in New York State before I moved back to Virginia, and I was hunting on a wildlife management area. It's old old canal towpath where they um, the mules used to pull the barges along when they're you know in the 1820s when they're bringing coal to go make steel and all that sort of stuff, char- making charcoal. And um, so I'm walking this old canal path, which is open to hunting, and um, through wildlife management area. And this pe- these people were walking a dog. I'm not you know insert breed. It doesn't really matter. But their dog was off leash. They weren't engaged in hunting, but the dog ran over and got amongst my dogs that were involved in hunting. And it's like they accosted me about hunting. I can only be, I have to be so far off the trail. Not true. Like they started making up all these regulations. I'm like, not true. I couldn't have a rifle. Not true. You know, all all these things that they had heard bits and pieces of them, they put together uh, to make this fabricated story of what the regulations were. And if you didn't know, if you were an experienced hunter, that would really intimidate you because the guy was very aggressive about it. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, and your dog's not on a leash and your dog can't be running around loose. You're, you know, you're violating game laws. You're violating the leash law, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it gets more, it's more common all the time. And so what's the answer to that is, is education and getting more people into hunting, you know, and as difficult as it is, we have to have these places for people to go. So um, if, there are plenty of people like uh, we run some Facebook groups and stuff for squirrel hunting and squirrel dogs. People will take others out, you know, not for a fee, you know, but if they, you say, Hey, you know, would you take me and my kids squirrel hunting? Yeah. Somebody will, somebody will most likely be near you that will do it. Um, I mean, they're still relatively like our dogs are still a relatively rare breed compared to like labs, you know, but um, yeah, there's, willing to take other people hunting and mentor them so it's you're, you wouldn't be completely on your own but you know hunting without a dog there even more and more states are actually having workshops for squirrel hunting you know where to go what time of year how to process the game how to cook the game um so that's been interesting you know our three our three funding uh has come through for some of that so um you know i just i look for a likely stand of hardwoods that has good mast production, you know, acorns, hickory nuts, um, and find a den or a nest and sit, sit quietly and just wait 30 to 45 minutes. If you don't hear or see anything, get up, go somewhere else, sit down for 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. It's the first 15 minutes is going to be everything settling back down from you first getting there, just like you're hunting anything else. Um, but the birds will come back out. The squirrels will come back out. Uh, you'll probably see something else too. Bobcat anymore these days, but, um, you know, turkey or, or bear or deer or something else will come out. If you just sit there and just be quiet. Um, I mean, ask any deer hunter, as soon as you get in the stand, you, you're there for 30 minutes, you're covered up in squirrels. So just shoot the squirrels, <laughs> you know, uh, take a rifle or a shotgun and a pellet gun. If it's legal in your area, you know, pump it up 10 times or whatever. And, um, you know, they make really nice pellet guns now that you shoot bison with. So, but, um, you know, go ahead and your rifles, but, um, yeah, it's it it's not easy. Don't anybody tell you it's easy. You know, everything the the town squirrel is doing is about like the town deer. 
Um, if they're laying around in your front yard and you go to the timber and try to hunt, they're going to be a lot different animal, <laughs> way, way more wary. They've got to contend with natural systems and predators and lack of food. And, you know, it's not going to be like popping them off a bird feeder, which is illegal in most places. So watch that. But, um, you know, they are a regulated game animal. You need a license. Um, yeah. So I mean, go out and have fun. Uh, it's just an opportunity to spend time out in the timber when, Basically everything, you know, you're waiting for turkey season or crappie fishing at this point, right? Um, you might as well keep hunting. I mean, we, we're in the timber. We have multiple states uh, every year, but we're in the timber six to eight months a year. So when somebody gets bit out of shape during the two-week rifle deer season, I just go, you know, if they're parked there, I just go somewhere else. Or I yeah. go during the middle of the day. They go hunt. They hunt there in the morning. I go hunt in the middle of the day, train dogs, and leave. And they never know I was there, and they still get their deer. Um because the deer don't care about the dogs. They've seen dogs. They know what dogs are. Um, and ours are broke from messing with them anyway. So the, the deer's <laughs> just like, no, oh, you know, might as well be a fox or something. They don't care about that. Um, and they'll come back in. So, I mean, you talk all you want to about them going nocturnal and this, that, and the other. But they still have a home range. Um, they don't leave the country. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll be back. If you, if you, that's why a lot of these states are going to split seasons for deer anyway, right? Is you get that naivete back that that opening season phenomena opening day phenomena where they're really susceptible to harvest and then they get educated if you have a gap in the season then they get really easy to harvest again <laughs> because they just got rid of that stimuli and that that hunting pressure is broken up and they just go back to their routine so yeah it's a lot easy to get access hunt clubs you know we'll let people go on squirrel hunts especially with dogs you know they'll want want their club members to go on a hunt or something do a a squirrel fry, you know, just like a fish fry or anything else. Um, a game dinner. Um, you know, they're, they're more than willing to have, you know, you'll end up with like six or 10 people in the woods, you know, and I don't carry a gun in that, you know, in that situation. Um, but it's, uh, you, you'd be amazed how people, you know, people, like you said, they'll remember it when they were a kid or they'll, um, talk about their parents telling them about it and that sort of thing. So I probably already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you ever hunt squirrels without dogs anymore? I haven't since 2005. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's, I guess put it this way. When we're walking, it's gotten to the point that when we're walking around the woods with the dog, I don't even look for them. I try not to because it just frustrates me if I, if the young dog is learning and like I see more squirrels and they're chasing a tree and I go, Oh, okay. I mean, you keep tabs, you know, you can't help but hear and see some things, but I don't shoot them unless they tree them. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, me at a disadvantage, I guess, in harvesting things, but it's not all about harvesting. It's about training the dog. So um, yeah, still or stand hunting without a dog. I haven't done it. I'm in my 18th year of remission. <laughs> <laughs> um, um you know I'm, I'm a recovered still hunter <laughs> <laughs> recovered still hunter i like that how yeah. how many uh yeah. how many dogs do you generally take out when you're when you're hunting does it depend on how many guys are with you or is it just like a standard thing you usually take two dogs or three dogs or whatever it is yeah yeah so, sometimes we get together as a group you know, as we call them buddy hunts. You know, we have competition events too, like field trials. And those casts, the way the format is, is two or three dogs in a cast. But when we go and hunt 
just meat hunt with um, other people. Generally, somebody will bring a dog, and then you bring your dog, and then you know another person will bring their dog. And so I've been up in the timber with like six dogs, and it, it gets a little crazy. That's not the normal situation. Uh, normally, you hunt uh, a dog to three at a time. Um, when when they're learning, it's good to do a mix of things like hunting them by themselves, so they don't become what we call a me too dog. Yeah, you've got a dog that's treeing. A young dog might just fall in and start treeing, but they don't really know what's going on. Uh, so we call it Me Too. They're like, you're treeing Me Too. Um, oh. And, you know, you could, they, they, they can learn some things. They can learn some things from uh, an older dog, but really once they know what a squirrel is, you know, you show them one or they, you know, they, they run across one and, you know, chasing on the ground or something. It's best to hunt them by themselves so they don't pick up other dogs' bad habits. Um, probably until they're like two. Um, but no one ever does that because everybody wants to get together all the time and hunt. So you end up with having to fix some bad habits, you know, running a deer or rolling in some dead thing or, you know, whatever things that dogs get into, but, um, leaving the tree, you know, or fighting with another dog at the tree, you know, all these problems that come up in dog training that aren't, you know, aren't instinctive or bred into them. You know, there are certain traits you just want to try to avoid, like, beelining away from you know not coming when called and stuff like that like having too much drive it's like balancing drive and temperament's a constant battle like you want the dog to come home when you're ready to go but um most things are avoidable if you just don't put the dog in a situation where it's going to learn to misbehave from another dog um do you have and that's tough for people because once you get a dog screen you want to show it off do you have any issues when it comes to like you showing up and your buddy shows up with his dog? Like if your dogs haven't been around each other, do you guys ever have them? I mean, they butt heads a lot. Um, not so much with these feist dogs. Um, with some of the other breeds, they can be a little what they call ill toward other dogs. You know, a little aggressive towards other dogs. But generally, that's tends to be relegated to the parking lot for the most part. Once you get out in the timber and start hunting, it's not a problem uh if it is a problem or or you know or your buddy knows that their dog is it you know might fight with another dog a tree or try to steal the squirrel and you know get aggressive over it or something um when the dog's tree you can tie him at tree so basically leash him and tie him to a little sapling or something nearby um, and then shoot the squirrel out and so it's like then the dogs you know may not be catching the squirrel on the ground but that keeps the dogs apart um so there's not an issue and usually like I said, they'll get used to each other and sort out dominance pretty quick um, when you're hunting as a group. Um, and then you just you just go on with the hunt like you normally would. But some dogs will retrieve to hand. You know, some don't. Um, some of these that they um, get really excited about a dead squirrel. Like if you show it to them, they're just squirrel crazy. Others couldn't care less. They're ready to go find another one. It just it's just depends on their individual personality. So that you've got that to play with too is, you know, what are their, you know, quirks, I guess, as an individual. And that's true of any hunting dog. I think that some are better, you know, using their nose or using their eyes or their ears to find game. And we try, we try to focus on a well-rounded dog that um, will use all those. So if it hears one chewing on a nut, you know, cutting, or if it um, hears one barking, it'll run in and tree that squirrel. Um, but also if they hear them on the ground or if they see them or, or smell them. And, and that's the winding is the last thing that dog figures out. It's that air scent. So like a squirrel may not have come to the ground. It's laying out on a limb and the dog's running around with his nose up in the air, you know, smelling and it'll, it'll follow that air current just like a, just like a pointer will to where a cubby might be sitting, you know, and then they'll tree and the squirrel never had come to the ground. So 
Um, you got to have a dog that is versatile and adaptable to these different conditions because a squirrel leaves a pretty complicated track. Um, you know, it's not like a, a rabbit that runs in a circle. Um, not to not to belittle that at all, but it's it's um, you know, there's good jump dogs, there's good trail dogs, track dogs, whatever. But um, a squirrel is on the ground, up on the side of a tree, runs up a log, jumps on a rock, you know, goes from treetop to treetop, comes down. Jump, I mean, you can't tree where the squirrel was. You got to tree where the squirrel's at. Um, and that's one of the big debates that we have in, in squirrel dogs between mountain curs and mountain feist is the hot or cold nose, uh, traits of the different breeds as a general rule. I mean, there's a continuum there that, uh, we won't belabor, but, um, in some situations like high winds or low squirrel numbers, you want a deep ranging dog that's got a stronger nose. Um, but you run the risk of the dog barking where the squirrel was at. 15 minutes ago, not where it currently is. It might be a tree or two over or something in most situations, but, but um, it's all personal preference really for the most part. It's like, do you like a Brittany or a, an English setter or a German short hair pointer? You know, they're different flavors, I guess. <laughs> so I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because it's going to kind of roll me into the next question. I'm going to pretend um, well, maybe not pretend this is real life, but if I'm, if I'm wanting to go get a, uh, a squirrel dog, like, where do I start? How do I know, you know, which dog to pick? Is there like a way to tell which pup's going to be a good one? Which one's not? Um, is it all about the training? Is it a little bit of both? Um, yeah. just kind of an idea for a guy yeah. that has no idea what he's doing. Well, as rare as they are, you, you have to watch. There's been a lot of people that have gotten into them from other pursuits and, you know, they'll get a dog from one kennel and a dog from another kennel and dog, you know, they'll, they'll start collecting them, you know, like potato chips. And then they'll, they'll slap a kennel name on it and they say, I've got a line. I'm like, mm, that's not how that works. You have to have the breeding practices and the evaluation and, you know, uh, all these other genetics and the pedigree study and all this stuff. But um, it can be, just know that you don't want to buy somebody's problem, right? It's very common. And there's people think there's a lot of money in selling someone a started dog, you know, one that's partially trained or broke. Um, and there's really not, by the time you spend all the time and money training the thing, you, you know, it's not like a $10,000 bird dog or coonhound or something. You know, it's, it's much less, you know, you're talking about up to $1,500 most of the time for a dog that's treating its own, but still needs work. Um, still needs to mature and get more confident, but, um, picking a puppy, everybody's got their own, um, criteria. They look at, you know, people, some people look at the mouth. Some people look at the parents, the uncles, you know, hunt. The, the best thing you can do is hunt with the parents. Um, and if they don't hunt them, then you go, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else. But if they, um, <laughs> if they will show the parents, they'll show the parents in the timber, that's a pretty good indication that there's at least something going on there that's worth looking at. Um, but just like anybody who breeds any animal will tell you just because a dog is good at something or, you know, um, any, any animal has the trait that you want, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to pass it on. So you try to look for a family of dogs that, um, that have a history of producing the traits that you want. And generally that comes through, uh, line breeding. Um, but, 
not necessarily and and not there's a lot of people that cross what they call like to like you know dogs with similar traits they breed them together in hopes of getting similar traits and usually unbeknownst to them it's because they have common ancestry so it ends up being line breeding but um you know you want to watch genetic diversity as well but like when you go and pick out a puppy you know i like the outgoing ones you know a lot of these dogs when we got into this they were shy at best they're almost feral um you know they they ran wild on farms they just a lot of them hunted for themselves to eat <laughs> you know they 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 weren't handled very much you try to touch them they ah you know they, you th- they like to bite you um they would bite somebody if they came up to the truck you know um they would they would run up behind somebody bite them on the ankle you know like, what the hell um you know what and, and it wasn't just our dogs it's everybody's everybody's dogs are that, that way and some other some of the other breeds are even worse and so like we've been trying to help feist dogs adapt to modern life like we've had to do um <laughs> you know you will see people you will see dogs you will see uncomfortable situations and how that dog reacts to that and so it's socialization is huge so i can take a dog that's quote-unquote mediocre if you socialize it um, and you give it the opportunity to be a good dog in the woods and you, know, you take it hunting like three times a week for at least an hour, you know, work with it all the time, take it to ball games, you know, whenever we get ball games back, but, um, you know, start taking it everywhere you go, work on obedience for the first four or five, six months, that dog will be a lot better adjusted and a lot more adaptable and a lot less likely to nip somebody. Um, especially, but like I said, we've been breeding away from that. It's not really aggressiveness. It was it was literally fear. They were they were afraid, and most dogs that'll bite you are afraid. You know, um, I can tell you how many times a dog come barking at me, it's wagging his tail. Those are the ones that'll bite you. Yeah, they're scared. Um, they're unsure. You know, and so and that's true of any. You know, you go buy a Great Pyrenees or you go buy a Chihuahua. I mean, it's it's the same thing. Socialization is huge. But there, it seemed like the way that they were raised when we got into this. There, there may have been a genetic component to it too. And we've been selecting for, uh, and then simultaneously making sure we socialize them, uh, but, but selecting for that temperament. And it makes them easier to handle when you're hunting too. Like the dog goes out about 200 yards and hunts. Well, if they treat a squirrel and they're across a property line, I say, leave it. Yeah. You know, and they'll leave the tree and come back, back over. I'm ready to go home. I said, load up and they'll beat me back to the truck. I'm not chasing a dog. I'm not, driving around the section waiting for my dogs to cross the road so i can catch them none of that business i don't have time for that i don't have the patience for that so um and yes you still get one that'll do something stupid i mean you know they're individuals and they're an animal you cut loose you never know what's going to happen but as a general rule across the board we've been shifting toward more personable uh more bit you know more biddable dogs that that will uh, listen to you rather than hunting for themselves um, and like I said, I think part of that was just the isolation at first, um, that a lot of these dogs were dealing with in, in Appalachia where they just never saw anybody else and they didn't hunt anywhere, but right around the house. Um, but now they got to ride in a box. They got to go, you know, sleep in a bed. They got to go ride in the truck, go to, you know, get fast food or something like people do. Um, you, you just can't have a dog that's going to be aggressive or anything. So, you know, I, I look for an outgoing pup, but you can look at the dominance too of the pups and I don't, I don't really like it. I don't like the bottom of the pile. 
you know, the some really submissive one, because that's the one that can be kind of scared um, or not understand why people are doing things. But I don't like the super dominant ones either, because those are the hard-headed knuckleheads that won't listen to you. So I try to go for one. If I walk up to a bunch of pups, the first one or two that come to me, I'm probably going to get one of those. Um, but then I'll watch them and see if they beat up on everybody else. <laughs> if they beat up on everybody else or food aggressive, I just I just don't get them. And, and you see that within our own litters, but I, but I've seen they get more level and more low key over time. So, and like I said earlier, it's, it's balancing that drive. You know, you want them to get out and go find a squirrel. Um, you know, if they're baying a coon on the ground, like you want them to get fur in their mouth, but you'd also don't want them hard to catch, you know? So it's, it's balancing all those things. So it's not just about what a dog looks like or how it, it whether it can hunt, you got to be able to catch it and take it home. <laughs> <laughs> Does there come a point to where, um, let's say you get a dog, let's say I'm out dog shopping for a squirrel dog. Um, is there come a point where mm-hmm. he's probably too old to, to train? Is it like a year, two years? Um, is that an issue? Um, it, it really depends on what they've had done to them. <laughs> you know, it takes on average three years to, to train a squirrel dog. You know, um, and we start early with the obedience and stuff and the handling, but um, generally they start training about six months, you know, six or eight months, and then they get more consistent over time. Then they start using their nose, and that you know, it's there's a progression. Um, actually, I talk about in, in my in my book, but um, you just want to make sure that you have uh, a dog that is going to, like I said, handle well and, and stuff, but um, it takes about three years to finish one. And then yeah, as long as they weren't abused in any way, you I can take a 16 month old dog, two year old dog and hunt it hard, you know, take it out to the timber a lot. And um, they generally will make a dog. If they've got it in them, it'll come out. You know, some dogs mature later than others. So, and that, that's been a, a blessing and a curse. A lot of people don't give a dog enough time, but at the same time, we want them to start showing something before they're two years old. Um, so there's a little bit of a a curve that they've got to meet. You know, there's a grading curve <laughs> that they have to have to meet, and that varies for everybody. But it seems to be people are pretty happy if they start sight chasing around six months, um, and then you know, split training from other dogs or you know using their nose to find them. Um, and some of them go through a little lull period, like a, like they look like they're two steps backward, you know, um, don't know what's going on. It's because they're trying to figure out that nose. So you'll have a dog that's mm-hmm. running and treeing really well by sight and you go, Oh, this is great. And then for like six months, <laughs> you know, up to six months, it'll just be like, this dog is an idiot. <laughs> you know, that doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> and it's, it's really trying to sort out that scent, you know, not just tracking on the ground, but air up in the air, you know, um and like i said it's not an easy track to figure out so you know they'll backtrack they'll go you know they'll go back you'll see the squirrel run and then the dog's tracking it that way you know <laughs> but they've got to figure out that time you know what's it, what does 15 minute old squirrel smell like versus you know five mm. minute and it's and it's tough on a young dog too those those hot tracks that are just really new and fresh sometimes i'll they won't even pick them up like i'll see the squirrel run 
dog will run right by like they didn't see anything, didn't smell any, nothing. They they did not pick it up because it takes time for that scent to come up off the ground. I'll go I'll go hunt more and I'll come back and they'll pick up that track on the way back and they'll they'll pick it up and start trying to follow that squirrel. So it's you got to give them time to to sort things out. Um, a lot of people uh, just get really frustrated with them and and I get it. I I understand the frustration like you've put all this time in the dog and then they look like they don't know what they're doing. That's why you got to really like, <laughs> don't go take them hunt with other people <laughs> because they'll make you look like an idiot. Um, you know, you're yelling for them in the woods and they're sitting there at the truck going, where have you been? Um, you know, <laughs> um, could you kind of run through, could you kind of run through like, um, like where you kind of start when you get a dog, like the first time you, you get him and you're going to introduce him. Do you just like throw him a dead squirrel and let him, kind of gnaw on it and get used to that smell or um, you take him straight to the woods? How does that kind of work? Yeah. The, the best thing for him is to, like I said, work on that obedience first and socialization. That's, that's key. Cause you don't be chasing the dog through the woods, trying to catch it and, you know, running off. But um, a lot of people do the squirrel tail thing or, or a dead squirrel, like squirrel tail on a string. It's like bird wing for pointers you know people have the have a fishing pole or a, a string and the dog will point the bird wing and people go look at my field champion you know all right well it's the same thing with these squirrel dogs people put a squirrel tail and, and tease the puppy and play with it fine that's you know play is like learning to hunt if they're in the wild in a den that's how wolves operate too they bring a dead thing and they play with the parts and um that's probably more useful to the handler <laughs> than the dog but they get to know what a squirrel is um taking the dog somewhere when they're like three or four months old to a place where they're going to bump into squirrels you know a park with an open understory um you know someplace just think of the places around you where you've got squirrels you just got to watch the roads you know you don't want a dog to get hit in the road or anything you can do a long line just like you would for any other dog too if you want to give them a little more lead but don't want them getting away completely and um yeah just have them bump into squirrels and like once they realize what a squirrel is um it's really just taking them to the woods and they'll start to piece things together if they've got that genetic background like i said it's there's some instinct here but the it's nature versus nurture like you mentioned um but if you if you can have all the nature you want to but if you don't nurture it um it might make a dog it might not most of the time it won't but you've got to you've got to turn those traits on turn those genes on and get them lined out in the way that you want to go so um yeah just take them to the timber like three times a week for 30 minutes to an hour, like I said, um, and just walk around, let them get used to the sights and sounds and smells Ride in the truck. You know, that's like the least favorite thing ever, especially if you don't have a dog box and your dog is riding in an SUV or something is you, they're not used to riding in a car and you get them in a vehicle and they puke on the seat. You know, it's nasty. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> rolling the windows down, trying not to throw up. Um, you know, so I, I generally don't feed a dog right before we go hunt. Cause you know, like, you know, maybe some of these runners listening carbo boost before a race, but you feed a dog a bunch before they hunt one. They're not going to hunt as hard because they're not, you know, you don't want to starve the dog, but you don't want to have a full stomach. Um, and, and actually in some of these dogs that run real hard, it actually causes stress diarrhea. Um, so basically everything they eat just passes through. Um, so your dog's spending most of the time going to the bathroom while you run around the woods instead of hunting squirrels. So at least for like the first, first 30 minutes. So I do try to restrict food, a little bit before we go like our dogs have free choice so it's a little tougher but like i'll load them up in the box like the night before or something or earlier in the morning if i'm gonna go in the afternoon 
uh, earlier in the day, I mean, if I go in the evening. And um, just to let stuff digest so they're not running around on a full stomach. Um, yeah. But make sure they've got water with them and stuff. Because, you know, anymore with wildlife out there, you don't want them to get drinking puddles and stuff more, more than you want to. Uh, when they need to, Giardia and everything else. I mean, it's the world has changed. You know, it's like you used to go to these hunt clubs and they'd have forty pounds there, and you'd be like, "What do you use for dewormer?" And they'd be like, "There's them's the survivors." You know, it's like, yeah, you can't <laughs> you can't call hard like that anymore. Um, so every every individual dog is, uh, uh, you know, an asset and needs to be maintained individually. Um, so with that said, they're not exposed to the things that they used to be exposed to. And most of these dogs, I'd say before the early two thousands, most of them spent their life tied to a blue barrel in somebody's yard. Um, and now they're sleeping in the bed, you know? So it's, they've had a complete, you know, their world's been completely changed um, just in the last couple of decades. Um, so, if I pick up a dog, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to be a promising dog, and I get him home, and I start shooting off 22 rounds um, and find out they're gun-shy, is yeah. there a way to break that, or is that an issue in the in the squirrel dog world? I know it is a lot in, like, the waterfowl world. Yeah, it, it can be, um, and it's not necessarily genetic. You know, people talk about it being genetic. Um, I think a lot of the genetics claims – is actually the fact that the mother or the some other dog around the pups when they're in their formative time are gun shy. And so they pick up on that reaction that the dog is having, you know, it's some mm. Caesar Milan stuff. Like you gotta be the pack leader and you know stimuli and all this stuff. But, um, gun shyness, if you catch it early enough, you can use reward to change that behavior. And like, if I see a dog that might start be starting to get that way, we'll back off on the shooting, you know, um, and reintroduce it. We basically start over with it, but, um, which can be tedious, but, um, really we try to nip that in the bud from the beginning. We've got four kids age nine and under, they make a lot of noise. Um, uh, so yeah. our puppies are pretty well bomb proof by the time they, they leave here. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, when you're, when you're feeding the dog, you know, clank the pans together. If they're in the house, drop something in the kitchen every once in a while, but give them a treat, you know, get them used to those loud noises. Uh, you know, introduce a cap gun. You know, actually some, sometimes kids are a little too wild. Like you got to tone some of that back, you know, tell them not to make too much noise around the pups and ease into it. But you know, you don't be too rough with anything. Just like you don't want a kid to be rough with anything when they're a little, because they just don't know. But um, yeah, they're, usually around gunfire like if i walk out of the house with like i don't know a broom they don't care if i walk out with a gun they their ears are up and they're you know ready to go they get all riled up like they see a gun they're happy they, you know, they like the noise um they get excited about it and so it's yeah it's just starting early making sure they're used to gunfire and sharp metallic noises uh, is huge like you know as people there's dogs are afraid of thunder and stuff like that i've never had that problem but i had some pups that turned out gun shy and it I was, at, I was in South Dakota and um, the neighbor came out with a 12 gauge and was shooting the limbs on the, we had these ash, green ash trees around the, around the housing development there. And um, he started blasting this 
12 gauge above this pin of pups scared that. I mean, they were bouncing against the chain link, you know, they were just trying to get as far away from him as they possibly could and couldn't in basically that entire litter ended up gun shy. Um, mm. Thankfully, most, the, most of them um, were going to be used as like trap line dogs and stuff. So like they weren't really going to be around a lot of gunfire because um, out there, you know, hardly anybody squirrel hunts, but yeah, that was, that was the only instance that I've had where, I had a major gun shyness issue and because of this guy literally he was shooting the leaves off the tree to get better reception on a satellite dish. I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Talk to your neighbor and use a chainsaw or something. I mean, what is wrong with you? Like, let me put the dogs in. I mean, I was like, these are hunting dogs. What are you doing? You know, he didn't know they were, um, they, they didn't know what, what the breed was. Nobody knows the breed is let alone what, you know, your squirrel hunting is South Dakota. Nobody squirrel hunts, but me, but when I was out there, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's you run into that, but it gun shyness is not something to give up on a dog for, um, unless they're like already years old, you know, a mature dog. It's it's tough to do. Um, but like I said, it doesn't mean that they they're not going to pass that on necessarily unless they have the opportunity to influence another dog behaviorally. You know, if, if a puppy sees a dog freak out like their parent, they might go, Oh, maybe I should freak out too. So so you talk a little yeah. bit now about all these gun shy um, workout people. I'm sorry. There's a little bit okay. of lag. No. So you talk a little, you talk about um, their nose being super important kind of makes me wonder. Um, I've heard of people leaving like their coon dogs and stuff outside. Do you let these dogs inside in your house and stuff? Or does that affect, um, does that make their nose get worse? No, it, um, I've seen all and done all different, uh, iterations of having them be indoor dogs, outdoor dogs, you know, like some of the best dogs I ever had were in the house. Um, but I think they were the best dogs I had because they were the only ones I had. Um, they were getting all the hunting time. You know, we have a dog or two, you can put a lot of attention into them. They start to get in tune to you, especially if they're in the house, you know, they have a strong bond with you and not that the ones that we have now that are indoor or outdoor aren't bonded well to us, but it's like when you have a pack, that's different than when you have one or two dogs. And so, um, no, I, I, I've seen in, anymore people have them as house dogs, um, which is one of the risks of a potential downfall for the entire breed, you know, it, it to be the harbinger of doom is that um, we run the risk of them because they're a, a medium to small, short haired dog that they're just going to be used for pets and bred for pets. And they're going to become overbred, you know, the genetic problems might crop up because people aren't following practices like they should. And, um, you know, the, the same processes that have ruined dozens of other breeds uh, that you may have read about or, or seen about uh, in your own experiences. So um, we have to pay careful attention to maintaining the working focus of these dogs and the hunting focus of these dogs um you know historically they were just the far little farm dog running around the holler that would keep the chickens safe and you know uh you grab a gun and say let's go and they go hunt and then they come back and they just protect the homestead um so they always had that uh multi-purpose existence but now it's like they've been bred and focusing for the squirrel hunting side of things um and now this pet focus is coming out so i try really hard to not place dogs in pet homes but it's getting harder and harder all the time because 
you know, Adam, you could tell me that you're going to hunt the dog and then it just thrown in a kennel and never messed with, um, which is a whole other problem. Um, and then you go, this dog didn't make it. Sometimes they make it despite their owners. But, um, you know, like I said, <laughs> there's that genetics there that helps. But, um, you know, they just get so pent up with energy and they see a score from the pin and they got to get the squirrel. But um, it's more often than not, it's like they become they become the house pet on the couch, um, on the sofa. And, and, you know, there's plenty of dogs at the shelter need a home. Um, you know, don't get a hunting dog to sit, you know, to not do its job. That's what they're bred to do. They're going to have urges and, and uh, desires that may not fit your lifestyle because they were developed in a different time and situation. Um, you know, it's like having a Husky in South Texas. You know, it's not fair to the dog. Um, you don't need that. You know, you're not going to go to Alaska and run the Iditarod. Um, leave the poor thing where it belongs. Um, and same with these dogs. Like, they love the heat and they love the cold if they're acclimated to it, you know, I don't do sweaters. Okay. <laughs> but if that's what people like to do with their dogs, fine. But, um, I would rather they were acclimated to the weather, grew a coat, got their feet toughened up, you know, were wearing their nails down, running down a gravel road, uh, to go find a squirrel, um, or running the timber on rocks to get to find a squirrel rather than, uh, not, fulfilling their intended purpose. And, and I think the dogs are happier if they're hunting, you know, they, they, their personality changes. They look forward to it as much as the dog can look into the future, but they definitely get excited when you, uh, when, when they, they get exposed to those situations. So. so you mentioned earlier that you had a book, um, from the forties or the fifties or the sixties about, um, squirrel conservation which I thought maybe I was the only person oh, yeah. in existence to ever think about something like that. Cause you constantly always hear about deer and Turkey and all that stuff. Now, um, how do you kind of make sure yeah. that you don't shoot out an area, um, when it comes to squirrel populations and stuff like that? Do you, I mean, how do you know if you've killed too many in like a woodlot? Is there like a good number to kind of to sure. go off of or, yeah, it, it squirrel populations are very cyclical, you know, and tied to the food availability. So if you have a good abundance of acorns and hickory nuts and other foods, um, the population will respond to that and be higher. Um, you know, we used to go to these competition events um, in Minnesota and Iowa and Wisconsin and different, you know, different areas that Ohio even that um, had these patchy woodlot you know you have an old homestead might have three acres of timber around where the house was you know or a hedgerow um yeah you can shoot those areas out if you're not careful they might only have one to three squirrels in them you know mm -hmm. uh fox squirrels or something but um the way things are through unlike the eastern half of the country um it's really an underutilized game animal um i can go like when i was in in the Northeast, like I could be in pick a new England state or New York or Pennsylvania and go to the wildlife management and basically have the place to myself. There are way fewer hunters in the Northeast than people realize. And, uh, it'd be like, it was like the United nations of hunting at this, this one wildlife management area near our house, eight miles from the house, there would be five pickups. There'd be us, the squirrel dog people, which were the weirdos, the deer hunter, <laughs> The, the pheasant hunter, 
somebody fishing and somebody doing something non-consumptive, you know, and it was the same five trucks. And then, you know, this whole situation with the health and everything going on, then everybody discovered the outdoors and it's like, we couldn't find a place to park, but, but most of the time <laughs> they weren't hunting. Most of the time, most of the time, like I, two years ago. Okay. This is pre all this stuff. Two years ago, I was what we call rig hunting the dogs, which is I was running them in front of the truck and they would run down this interior road. You know, it's not a, not a state road. It's a wildlife management area road, but they're running through this woods road in front of the truck. And if they smell squirrel, then they go in and tree and I'm driving because usually I've got like kids with me or they're asleep or something. So I'm just really just running the dog's <laughs> energy off. Um, but anyway, the game warden's right there. And I stopped and talked to this guy. He's just out of college, which is, you know, no fault for that. But it was opening weekend of deer season that weekend before. Like, I was there on Monday. He just had the opening deer season that Saturday or whatever it was. So, and I was talking to him, and he said there was nobody out. He said, I was driving around, couldn't find anybody. Couldn't even talk huh. to anybody, let alone check their license. I'm like, what is going on? They're not out there. Um, you go to a natural area, you have the place to yourself. And it's, and it's insane. Um, and there's pockets where it's more active and, you know, but they're usually not hunting. Um, in the Southeast, it's not that bad yet. And it's not that bad in the upper Midwest. Um, uh, you know, highest hunting numbers are still in the upper Midwest, Northern Great Plains, uh, per capita, but there's just fewer people. But, um, <clears throat> even Missouri, we have family out there. People hunt during deer season, but after that rifle season's over, there's nobody out there. And, and, um, it's just crazy. You know, you just, we, we really do need, uh, to work on this recruitment problem. Uh, and you, you see the articles recently about, you know, getting this places to yourself. And you run to that, some of these squirrel dog guys, like in Arkansas, Louisiana, where there's a lot of hunters still, but it's not going to be that way forever because the trend is not panning that out. You're not going to be crowded soon. So you need to be happy about that. Yay. But, you know, because you get access and you're not bothered by any of it. But the problem is you're going to lose your ability to hunt. They're going to regulate you out of existence. Um, and if they don't start with you, they're going to start with something and they're going to whittle away until they get to you. That whole stuff that the NRA talked about for years or, you know, Safari Club or Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, I mean, pick, pick an organization. Um, you know, they talk about, you know, oh, well, they banned dove hunting or they banned bear hunting. They're coming for you next. They are. They exist. You know, the anti-hunting folks are coming for every available opportunity to ban a practice um, or limit a season. And I used to think that uh, people are a little, maybe a little paranoid about that, but it's like, no, no. Look at the bear referendums in Maine. Um, look at uh -huh. deer dogs in Virginia, North Carolina. Um, look at mountain lions out West, look at, you know, it's just like, just pick something and you go, Oh, somebody's fighting that. Um, so it's like when they go, I'm going to ban semi-automatic weapons. I go, Whoa, 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 Whoa. My 22 <laughs> is a semi-automatic rifle, you know? Um, okay. so you got to watch that stuff. It, even if it might not pertain to you, um, it, it could have ramifications that you might not understand. And like the right to retrieve in Virginia, you know, if your dog goes on a neighbor's property and this is any dog rabbit, dog bear dog whatever lab um you can leave your gun 
at the boundary, so you're not hunting on them. You go to the property where you're not, you don't have permission to hunt, retrieve your dog without notifying the landowner and leave. You just catch your dog and leave. Um, well, that's that's in question now. Now they're saying, oh, well, you got to, Mr. Coon Hunter, it's three o'clock in the morning. You got to knock on my door and notify me that you're going to go catch your dog. And nobody wants that. But as people build their houses up against public land, they're trying to control access to that land. Um, so things that we took for granted, like we we're talking about earlier in one of our iterations before we get blocked out by my bad internet, is that like um people are de facto trying to control your access to a resource that our ancestors came to this country to have the right to hunt and fish and have access to public spaces. Um and now people just don't see any value in that and they go, Well, you don't need to do that, that's barbaric and backward. Um, uh, but no, I do need to do it. So does my dog. <laughs> You know, this is what we were bred to do. We're human beings. We, you know, we eat, you know, we have to be in these natural spaces. So we don't go crazy like all y'all. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. The health benefits, uh, we can make an argument alone of being out in nature, but, um, you have a much different connection and much closer, uh, association with the natural world when you're part of it, rather than just looking at it or watching it on TV. And like I said, we're in the timber for eight months out of the year. Tell me a hiker that's out there eight months. Uh, not very many. Not very many. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's funny that they start with um, animals that are more romanticized, I guess, like um, mountain lions or bears. And it seems like you can just watch it like trickle down the trickle down the totem pole. Um, I know trapping. Oh yeah, um, has has been kind of on the up and up for them trying to ban that over the years think squirrels will be like the last on the list because they're not you know people hit them with cars and stuff all the time nobody really nobody really thinks about it or yeah you you would like to think so but there was um in new jersey not to pick on jersey but um in south jersey they had a squirrel competition this is not dogs just adam you form a team of two to three people and i'll form a team of two to three people and we'll go squirrel hunt and whoever, you know, they had prizes for like the biggest squirrel, most squirrels, big, the most weight cumulatively of the squirrels. And, you know, it, whatever, it was a potluck, you know, get kids out in the woods, where people threw a holy fit, fighting it at oh. tooth and nail, trying to get it banned, trying to get, you know, hunting competition. You know, you hear about mostly with coyotes, right? Get rid of these bounties and hunting competitions. And, you know, bounty don't, they don't really work because they're not wolves. But am I going to progress somebody who wants to hunt coyotes? No, but you have to understand, like, once you start killing coyotes, you can end up with more coyotes if you're not careful and do things right. It's not like wolves where we were using every method at night with lights and poisoning them. And, you know, we don't have those annihilation tools available to us as recreational hunters, uh, you know. But coyotes, will they have compensatory breeding. So if you kill the quote-unquote alphas, the, the more subordinate ones will start to breed or young ones will come in from other territories and try to take over that territory. So it gets, it, you know, you have more shuffling through. So you need to make sure you get the coyote that's causing the damage, you know, or keep the pressure on, but it's just hard the way recreational hunting is to keep the pressure up the, you, the way you need to. So you end up with more coyotes a lot of the time, unfortunately. But anyway, um, yeah, they, they will come for squirrels. They will come for anything. And I keep saying they, anti-hunters, uh, they're a small portion of the population, but they're vocal. And they're convincing more people all the time. So we don't do a good job of telling our stories necessarily. And it's started to change. People, are, organizations and companies are starting to do a better job. Um, 
but yeah, I'm cognizant of like, not going to take a bloody picture, not going to, you know, like one of the questions I get asked, you know, we'll make sure things are very nice and, and orderly in photos, but I get asked all the time, what do you do with them? You know, you shoot squirrel. What do you do with them? I eat them. <laughs> really? I'm like, yeah, it's illegal to not. And most, most of the states I'm familiar with, actually, I think, it, I think like Arkansas or Kentucky, you know, like one of the states where they still allow nest shooting, which whatever, um, that's their regulations. But, um, most states that I'm familiar with, it's called wanton waste. You're not allowed to kill a regular game animal and not try to make use of it. Um, uh-huh. You'll get in trouble. So it's like, yes, there's a season. There's a bag limit. These are regulated. You have to have a license to do this. They have the same, you're talking about bringing the, bringing the uh, little higher class to it. Um, they should be treated with more respect because once an animal gets relegated to pest mode, you know, um it's hard to get back from that most don't you know skunk you know badger you know look what happened to them so um you know even bears like that's why we've got to manage these bear populations because if bears become a nuisance and a pest they fall rapidly from that you know that high esteem of game animal you know trophy not to lack for a better word but this this like you said charismatic megafauna to be in a rat digging through your garbage, you know, that's, that's not a good, that's not a good place to be. It's a slippery slope. So the squirrel, the rat with a furry tail eating the bagel out of the trash can, not what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) This is a a wild local, you know, locally sourced, organically fed natural food that we're talking about here. So what, uh, what do you think squirrel hunting looks like in the next, uh, let's just say, 50 years? Because I'm planning on being around in 50 years. You think it's going to be uh, think it's gonna be allowed, or you think it'll be like I'll be out there like a vigilante shooting these squirrels because I'm probably not going to stop? Well, I hope I'm still around, but I probably, uh, maybe I'll have hair. I don't know. But um, <laughs> doing good so far. But I, I have, you know, I'm a pessimist. I'm a wildlife biologist. I'm, you know environmentalists or conservationists, you know, and I see you know, uh, there was a quote that I had uh, on this other podcast, but anyway, I, to paraphrase, it was basically like the joy that I get to have is I walk around and I see all the damage, you know, it's like you're pessimistic about it. Cause every time, everything, everything you look at is mismanaged, you know, every stand of timber is too dense or it's, you know, not burned enough or there's invasive species or, you know, pick all these problems but that's that's our training we see all those things that we need to fix and um so that gets it wears on you but um i try to be optimistic about the future um i'd like to think that the things that we've been doing since 2005 have helped promote not just the mountain feist breed and our own dogs but hunting with squirrels they're hunting squirrels with dogs in general to try to slow that attrition of people aging out of hunting um, introducing new people of all backgrounds to squirrel hunt, and then they get into hunting in general. You know, they, that's their their gateway into into uh, hunting other things, um, and in getting the kids back involved. I mean, I, we take people out, our own kids hunt. You know, I got my wife into hunting ten years ago, twelve years ago now, um, and uh, we take people, family, friends, acquaintances, people we don't even know. We get together, like I said, I hunted with a outdoor writer um, here a couple of weeks ago. It's, you know, anything that we can do to get other people to understand what we're doing and why we do it um, is desperately needed. And we definitely need more people doing it. 
um, because squirrel populations, you know, if you look population dynamics or you, know, you study wildlife in any way, you start to look at one of the big justifications for hunting is population management, right? Um, in the case of squirrels, it's like, well, we need to use them or we'll lose them. Uh, their mortality is just phenomenally high if you don't harvest them heavily enough. And we don't harvest, they get hit by cars, like you mentioned. That's their mortality these days. We have hawks and all these predators back that we may not have had in the past, but there's so much mortality on the roadways, just a complete waste. Um, so it's like, yeah, we need to hunt these places harder. So like your question about shooting a place out, please shoot a place out so that they can move in from the other areas and thin across the landscape because they're just not being used. Um, so that's, you know, it's, I try to be optimistic about it, but I have real reservations about the ability to use dogs to hunt at all. Um, and some of the ammunition and some of the tools that we use to hunt firearms that we use, I don't say weapons, but, uh, you know, that's, that's from my DC days, but, but the firearms <laughs> that we use, um, we could have drastically different access to those things. I mean, I talked to falconers, archery. Uh -huh enthusiast about you know i've got people using these dogs that have a hawk you know fletching their own arrows and napping their own arrowheads i mean like i never would have thought but these people exist because they're scared to death that they're not gonna be able to get ammunition or they're gonna ban their weapon so you know, choice what you know whatever it is or they're not gonna be they can't find ammunition look what's happened you know since like the obama administration you haven't been able to find ammunition there's a store around here finally you can get like nine millimeter so i'm gonna i guess i'm hunting deer with a nine millimeter pistol next year because um <laughs> you can't find shotgun slugs let alone you can't find buckshot or you know six shot for squirrels um i've got 22 stockpiled but like i'm going through it because i use it you know i'm not it's not sitting in my basement i actually use this stuff to hunt so please if you're listening to the show stop buying all the 22 so i can buy some leave me some 20 gauge <laughs> shotgun shells at walmart so i can go squirrel hunting to eat the squirrels. Thank you. Um, Cause it's like, <laughs> I get it. I, I understand like the soldier of fortune and prepper side of life. I mean, we've got a cabin in the middle of the woods too, but that we could go escape to, but um, <laughs> I just want to be able to continue to pass this tradition on to my kids. And if, if it's functionally impossible to do either way, the land use changes or the parcel sizes or people are banning the dogs or, you know, you can't, you know, whatever, you can't own the firearm to, you know, to go hunt with. Um, those are major, major problems. Um, so making sure we have access to places to go. And like you mentioned earlier, Adam, like people to take you, um, that's, that's just huge because not everybody has a dad or an uncle that grew up hunting to take them, you know? Um, so we just, it's just, yeah, like I said, I, I'm not sounding very optimistic, but I try to be <laughs> because you either laugh about it or cry about it because it's like a constant barrage. It's like as soon as someone tries to ban bear dogs, I go, hey, you know, because they don't even think about squirrels because nobody's thinking about squirrels. Um, like I mentioned with the semi-automatic thing, lead ammunition. Okay, just now recently, like in the last two years, there's been alternatives to 22 lead. But for... 25 26 years that i've been hunting before that there wasn't any you know so it's like when you're at these meetings that you know the agencies are talking about we need lead alternatives i'm like you're talking about for deer loads or for shotgun shells but there's nothing for me for a 22 don't ban lead ammunition you know um 
public land. You know, they're like lead free on public land. I go, uh, okay, so I'm using a shotgun with a duck load because it doesn't exist, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm shooting fours at a poor squirrel, you know? They're like dodging it like the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> Blown in half by the time you get, get to them. Right. Um, Headshots only, okay? He's waiting for him to peek around the tree. <laughs> so for anybody that, that hasn't been squirrel hunting that's kind of interested in it, um, could you kind of lay out how many squirrels somebody might need? Let's say let's say I'm going to cook dinner for my wife and a buddy. How many squirrels would we need? And kind of like, let's yeah. say let's say you're going to cook dinner for us. What, what are you going to, how many squirrels are you going to have and what are you going to make? Yeah, I guess it depends how hungry you are. But no, th- you know, think about <laughs> it in terms of, you know, chicken wings, okay? Because it's a similar size. You know, you're dealing with bones and, you know, unless you debone it, which you can do, um, which makes things a lot more versatile. But, um, you know, if you're talking three people, if you have, you know, at least a couple squirrels a piece, you're talking about gray squirrels, you can have one squirrel a piece if you're talking about fox squirrels. You know, they're a lot bigger. Um, but generally people cook, uh, probably more than they need just cause they feel like they need more. But, um, uh-huh. like we, um, we made these, uh, squirrel cakes. We deboned them and it kind of came up. It's kind of like a crab cake that we took to a wild game dinner. And, you know, that was, I think it was 18 squirrels, a mix of gray and fox squirrels, but it was 18 squirrels. Um, and we made enough, it was probably 20 people all had at least one. You know, and a lot of people had two or three of them. So, I mean, it's it, it fed quite a few people as an appetizer in that way because, you know, we had – there was a fish fry and these venison and wild hog and all these other things. But it was it was probably the most talked about thing there because it was different. Um, at a family reunion – you know, don't make fun of me, pun intended or whatever. But um, at a family reunion, we did uh, garlic parmesan squirrel legs and backs. You know, like the back legs and, and then the – like basically the tenderloin. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was wildly popular, especially when they were still hot and it just came out. Um, a lot of these things, just like any other – like a chicken wing, they don't reheat the same necessarily, but uh, you definitely want to use the oven rather than – and cover them rather than doing the microwave or something. But, um, you know, try to retain that moisture. So, I mean, yeah, with sides, like if you had fox squirrels or – or even gray squirrels, like I said, a squirrel or two per person plus sides, you know, you're, you're golden for the most part, you know, unless you're like some of my cousins that eat like, you know, side of beef at a time, you got to deal with that. But, um, the novelty of it, I guess, is like, what do people to try it? And then they're like, Oh, I've been missing this. You know, they're everywhere. They start seeing squirrels as food rather than, uh, you know, they're in my attic. <laughs> yeah. It's a little different, a little different uh, relationship. Yeah, it's always funny. It's always funny when you introduce somebody to to eating a squirrel because most people are like, "Ooh, ooh, gross," and then they eat it and they're like, "Man, that's pretty good," or it wasn't that bad. So, um, I guess I want to ask yeah, you, like what would else. be it's all how you prepare. what would be your number one piece of advice for somebody wanting to get involved um, in like training a squirrel hunting dog? And so we've got um, a couple different groups that we run on Facebook. My wife and I do. I say we. There's no mouse in my pocket. It's my wife, Jess, and I. And um, we the, we started the first 
mountain feist or treeing feist, you know, depending on where you're in the country, they get called different things. But the first feist um, Facebook group. So it's like more than 10 years ago. Um, and we call it the, the treeing and mountain feist group. And it's real creative. And um, there's <laughs> thousands of people, like 20,000 people on that. So not everybody wow. on there has a dog, but you can find people near you, connect with people, um, and uh, see what dogs are, might be available. I mean, things are private message anymore, um, as you are probably aware, uh, with animal sales on social media is getting tougher. But it's like not that we're not a puppy mill. We breed like a litter a year, um, and they're generally, uh, generally, they are spoken for before we even make the cross. I've got six deposits right now, and I haven't even bred the dogs. So there isn't this, you know, oh, they're filling the shelter bowl. There's not, I can't get them in a shelter because they're in somebody's yard. So um, I don't have that problem, thankfully. Um, so, you know, there's enough, enough competition and demand out there. So you probably, you may have to put a deposit down depending on the, on the breeder. Um, I've had people wait as long as two years. So don't, but don't let that discourage you. Most people, which is like a few months. Um some people wait and take deposits until after the pups are born, but I've never had a problem with um, meeting my deposits. Uh, if there's ever an issue, like on somebody else, like say Adam, you put down a deposit, you know, hundred dollars, and toward a five hundred dollar, you know, three to five hundred dollar puppy, depending on who it is, the fifty to hundred dollar deposit, and um, something happens and you can't date that pup, a lot of people will apply that deposit to the next litter. So you might have first pick uh, at uh, the next litter, you know, that next year or something. So it's 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 not the wait isn't too terribly long at least with us um because i don't take that many a lot like i'm in the point now people ask me oh, let's wait and see what's born and then like i'm not even taking deposits right now but i'll go yeah. back to those people that emailed or called if we do have something extra like eight are born instead of six or something um or um somebody else backs out for whatever reason then i'll go back and and scoop those people up and get them get them uh, a dog um, but people, like you said, picking a pup, people are, they love the color, you know, what color they want, male or female tend to be the most of the things. And then I try to fit those as best I can, you know, um, based on the order of deposits received. So it, it can be a little, you know, not that it's frustrating for the potential buyers, but it's frustrating for me if people change their mind a lot, you know, just tell me if you want a male <laughs> or female, if you don't care about color, let me know, you know. <laughs> Cause like, yeah. I, you know, I got people, I, I get between 15 and 30 series a month um, for six puppies a year. So um, there's definitely room for people to, to do this and do this in the right way. But you know, there's a lot of people that are maybe getting into this for the wrong reasons and just want to raise pups. But um, the whole idea is to make better dogs that are better at doing the job in the long run and, and keep that working ability. That's, that's the primary goal, but it really started because we wanted our kids and our grandkids to have decent dogs to hunt with. And uh, not that I didn't like things that were out there, but I liked different aspects of the different lines that were out there. And we started our own to try to move in a direction that seemed like people were moving away from, um, you know, breeding more for pets and stuff. Like we're, we're very performance driven, um, which thankfully we've had a lot of good uh, practices from people that had the dogs before us to, to build on. Do you guys only sell dogs locally or is, um, do 
you guys get contacted by a lot of people from out of state? How does that kind of work if they, they just want pictures of the dogs or do they have to come see the dog to kind of figure out what they want? I'm, I know you said they put a deposit down sometimes before they're even bred. Yeah, a lot of people um, that actually get the dog um, are people that we've hunted with, usually at least mm. once, um, probably more than that. Um, like one guy that just got one, he was on the, on the committee for an organization that I worked for. Um, and this is 15 years later. Now he finally, he just got one, um, because he was in a position in his life where he wanted to try it. Um, but he knew we had him. And so it's like, whenever someone goes squirrel dog, they go, Oh, contact the grace. But, um, no, we get inquiries, like I said, 15, sometimes 30, you know, as soon as squirrel season opens, I get flooded with people looking for started dogs. Look, you're not going to find, <laughs> very rarely, you're going to find a dog that is worth a damn when the season's open. Unless it's a puppy. <laughs> but a trained dog, trained dog, can you see this on the recording? My little, the, can you see what I'm making with my claw hands? The, yep. the, the little, you know, the quotation marks. Um, a good dog is not going to be for sale during the hunting season, okay? Um, because they're being hunted. Uh, they should be being hunted. So it's, it's hard to get a trained dog during the season, but a started dog, maybe a puppy. Yeah, maybe I try not to breed during the season or have, have pups during the season because I want my females to hunt too. Um, so we generally have them in the spring or, or late summer. Uh, you know, they come in heat every six months, their dog, but um, no, it's, it's, you know, the deposits and people contact us from the Northwest, Texas. I mean, We've placed dogs in 28 states. Um, wow. And multiple dogs in states. So, um, like I said, not that we breed at a high rate, but they go everywhere. And the most people come and pick them up from us. We have shipped in the past and do ship currently, you know, but it's at the buyer's expense. But it's gotten to the point now, a plane ticket for a dog is not any cheaper than it is for you or me. So, um, not many people do that, but we did have a lady that flew out to get a dog, took her back in her, in her, on her carry on and took the dog back. Um, so people do it still, but not, it's not nearly as common as it was, but it, it's shipping is, is tricky, especially on airlines because you have to have the right temperature, you know, for the welfare reasons of it, you gotta be, there's a very small window with temperatures because they ride in the cargo hold if you don't come and carry them on. Um, which, you know, that's not ideal, but mostly we, we use, um, ground transportation that's climate controlled. Uh, there's a couple of different companies that we call them dog haulers, but they're transport companies that will um, move dogs from point A to point B. They'll go door to door from our house to your house. Um, and they generally make it within two or three days. You know, like I said, and that's somebody in Oklahoma wants a dog. It takes two days to get there. It's just physically how long it takes. Um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, most people come, most people come, come visit us and see the dogs go on a hunt or something like that. So. What would be what would be um, a dog on the low end? Female, uh, a What's trained that? dog. A I'm trained sorry, dog. One that knows. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, you know, there's different levels. So there's there's lightly started, well started, broke, and a finished dog. To generalize, you know, there's a continuum there, and each dog gets to the different level based on their own ability and what they're doing in the woods. Some, you know, a finished dog that's not worth a not worth feeding, uh, might never get to broke, <laughs> you know, just, it just, you know, it's happy to be here. <laughs> um, 
you know, it likes, it likes to ride in the truck. You know, there's that, but uh, they don't all make it, but they're not all, they're not all stellar dogs, but we, we strive to be above average squirrel dogs, you know, in, in a litter, we're doing pretty well with that. And so um, every once in a while we get a stellar one, but you know, it's, it's, um, uh, anywhere from puppy price to about 12 to $1,500 for a started dog. So that's, you know, they've had the obedience. They, they know how to handle, they know what a squirrel is. They ride in the truck. They're not, you know, they're, they're socialized to gunfire. Um, they will treat their own squirrel. Um, but they've got more work to do. They're not mature yet. They're not consistent. Um, they're still figuring a lot of things out. Um, and then a broke dog, this, you know, this might be a two, two and a half year old dog. Um, most people, when they get them to that point, they're going to take them on to a finished point anyway. But, um, you know, they can be 2000 to 3,500, something in that range. And then finished dogs, again, there's a whole continuum there, but depending on what the dog is doing, but once they reach their genetic potential, you know, their finished dog in most people's mind, um, and if you hunt with it and you like the way it hunts, you know, that those that's again it's like two thousand dollars up to about five or six thousand. And that's that's the most, you know, on average. I mean, like you see, you know, I've heard of a couple instances where the dog went for more, but it was like a title dog, you know, that had produced other champion dogs and you know, so that was an outlier. That was, you know, there's a bell curve and it was out way out here on the end, uh, on the tail of that distribution. But um no, but that's sort of what you're looking at is anywhere from puppy price up to about $1,200 for a started dog. And then, um, you know, you can spend as much money you know, as you want to, but it's the work, you know, it takes, like I said, three years on average to finish a squirrel dog. So it could be a four or five year old dog. I've put a lot of boot leather into that dog and I don't sell very many of them. I've, I've sold like two started dogs in 15 years, 18 years. So it's not, they're not very common, at least for us. Cause we don't, breed at that high of a rate like we keep the dogs that we have so we can hunt with and and raise a pup but um a, we sell most of them as as pups that the the buyers need to train um but now that we're back in you know we're back on a farm and got more room we might start training a few dogs but it's like you still again how are things changing looking for the future if your municipality limits the number of dogs you can have um that is a real hindrance for maintaining a line of dogs so i mean not that we're in that situation now but we were uh for like seven years and so we can only have like three adult dogs which okay fine we're not you know i've got four dogs now big deal but um it's if you wanted to have your dog come and stay with me for a couple months and get training that's harder to do if you're not allowed to have but so many dogs Mm. on your premises so so that's that could be a huge problem in the future. So I'm very reliant on other people. You know, people have gotten dogs from us. I'm I'm very reliant on them training the dog, doing what it's supposed to do, and then we'll get a pup back or we'll go breed to that dog or you know, we'll hunt with that dog, send people to them to get puppies because I just don't have the volume. Like we just don't breed at a high enough rate to fill all these requests. And then, you know, I am kind of a butt about it. Like I'll make people contact me multiple times sometimes just because I want to make sure they're not kicking tires. Um, and they're mm-hmm. really serious. Like I don't do impulse buy like Christmas puppy. Nope. <laughs> yeah. It's like Easter <laughs> bunny or chick. Nope. Like I don't yeah. do Christmas present, you know, unless you're like a 70 year old dude um, that I know that like, is not going to get tired of it in five minutes. 
um, which there's a lot of those like 70 year old people that are getting into this. Um, like I said, we're, we're short stopping people from aging out of hounds and bird dogs, but you know, it's, we're not in the puppy business. We're in the squirrel dog business and, and it's not really a business. It's a hobby. And we're just trying to keep the dogs from going extinct or being ruined, which is the same thing. So, so I wanted to give you a chance to tell everybody kind of where to find you at like um, your website and your book, your book as well. Um, could you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah. So in, in 2018, um, I wrote a book that we self-published um, called The Mountain Feist. And, um, you know, we've had decent success uh, selling the book. You know, we, we asked $30 a piece for them. That covers shipping and everything, you know, but printing them. So we, um, yeah, the shipping and handling and the printing is like huge because because we're self-printing, we have to get them from the place that publishes them. So we pay for that shipping and making the book. And then we in turn ship them to you um, so it has, you know, that stuff adds up. So, but anyway, we're actually in the process of getting more printed. So we should have some more hopefully in the spring. Um, because we moved, like we didn't want to haul. So we kind of let them, let them dwindle out. Um, so we'd have to, another box of stuff to box of books to move. I should show you this bookshelf here, just book, but, um, you know, I get tired of moving <laughs> books with dollies. So anyway, we let them kind of peter out. So we've got like a handful, but I keep intending to save some back for the kids. Um, so we should do that. But anyway, um, we've got some coming, but our website is just grazemountainfeist.com. That's A, you know, it's one of those four letter words, gray, that nobody knows how to spell. It's G-R-A-Y, uh, grazemountainfeist.com. And um, we're on Facebook uh, at Grays Mountain Feist, uh, on Twitter at Gray Feist. It's just G-R-A-Y-F-E-I-S-T. That's my my personal handle but i do a lot if you use the hashtag gray feist you find that we've got an instagram um we're on go wild uh, i'm on there all the time i'm the crazy squirrel guy that's how we got connected um and uh yeah it's just you know just on the very so if you look up if you if you google mountain feist you'll probably see one of our dogs um and that's not from any great marketing strategy it's just from the fact that we've been doing this a while and we try to get the word out and, and, you know, talk with folks like you yourself and it helps spread the word and get people thinking about maybe a pastime that has been dying out. Um, you know, in the 1990s, there were about 7 million squirrel hunters in the United States. Um, I think we're probably, I think we're around like, I don't remember. It was like 40,000 or something. Um, it's, wow. it's We're about like quail hunters. If it wasn't for dogs, it'd be even worse. You know, people have people have gotten into squirrel dogs, and that's pretty well saved squirrel hunting, at least in, in modern modern couple of decades. So, saving it for yeah. now. Sometimes you feel very alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely gonna. I I love to hunt squirrels. Um, I didn't. I I loved having you on because I didn't know a whole lot about um hunting squirrels with dogs. I you know I'd seen on YouTube and different places, but um. I really didn't know a whole lot about it. So um, it was a good chat kind of learning about um, the specifics kind of, of it about, and um, all that. So yeah, um, thanks for having I'll, me. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time, Marcus, and um, I will catch up with you and go wild. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Yep. Thank you very much.